Close to a century removed from prohibition. Prohibition! Speakeasies, gangsters, and moonshine still loom large in the public imagination, but our understanding of the era is mainly steeped in Hollywood dramas like Boardwalk Empire. This idea that somehow gangsters from that era are glamorous, they've got the hats the certain way and the ties and the whole thing, and of course also completely ignores the real human cost of all of this. From Virginia Humanities, this is With Good Reason. I'm Sarah McConnell. Today, the greatest myths of prohibition, and later, trading organs for money and other taboo trades. But first, in the 1990s, a group of black single mothers known as The Circle formed an underground gambling ring in Danville, Virginia. During the week, they toiled at their day jobs, but on the weekends, they gambled, and their winnings often exceeded their paychecks. And that extra cash went a long way to easing the struggle of raising a family as a single mother. With Good Reason producer Matt Darrow has the story. People might not like a whole lot of things you do, but you do it for survival. This is Martha Luck McLaughlin. Growing up, her parents were strict church people. My father was a preacher, and my mother, you know, she was in church too. She learned how to play cards at her cousin's house. That's when she first got into gambling. That's right. I had a whole lot of fun. <laughs> but what started as a fun time with childhood friends eventually became a lifeline to making ends meet as an adult. As I got older, children grown, we got a card circle up, and that's how we made our money to have extra that we could provide for us and other people. Because a whole lot of time going through life, it ain't easy. Get a little rough sometimes. In 1990, Martha formed an underground gambling ring with seven other members. They called themselves The Circle, and each member had one thing in common. Single women. The dad is going on about his business, and you got to do what you got to do to survive with you and your children. See, cause in a single mom, when she raising children, she got to make sure they got this, she got to make sure they got that, then she got to feed them and everything. At that time, I won't get no food stamps. For eight months out of the year, Martha worked at the Danville Tobacco Market, which used to be one of the country's leading tobacco manufacturers. And the work was drudgery. So she always looked forward to the card circle. That's what got her through the work week. You couldn't wait till Friday. I'm going to the card game. And we would have games like Friday to Saturday. What happened at night, start like 6 o'clock in the evening, we might go to the hook next morning at 6 o'clock. We didn't play no music, but mostly concentrating on how to make that money. And the money she made gambling was often much more than what she earned at the tobacco factory. If I'm having good games, I make more gambling. Because, you know, you take them taxes and stuff out of your check. And by the time you get your check, you might come home with $300. But if I'm having a hard game, I'm looking for the sky. So the sky was sometime $115, $2,000, all depends. When Martha was hosting the card circle, she had one simple rule. Treat people the way you want to be treated. And a whole lot of times, you find a bond with people because of the way you carry yourself. If I carry myself like a hoodlum, I'm going to be treated like a hoodlum. But if I carry myself like a lady, I'm going to be treated as a lady. It wasn't out of the ordinary to have 15 to 20 people show up at her house. If I was those, I had to cook, get my six decks of cards, you know, get my beer, get my sodas. We laughing and talking. You can't get but so loud because people are concentrating on their cards. So therefore, we enjoyed each other. The members of the circle all took turns with hosting duties and shared a joint bank account of gambling winnings. 
Sometimes they use that money to go on trips together, and sometimes they use it to pay bills and put food on the table. And at the end of the year, we used to split that money. You know, mom and juggle. So we are hell. In Virginia, the gambling laws are a bit murky. It's not necessarily illegal to have a poker night with friends, but it is against the law for an operator to take a cut of the money, or if the gambling regularly occurs at someone's private residence. This meant that the circle was technically illegal, so they took pains to keep the whole operation under wraps for a little over a decade. I said I trust them, but I still watch certain people. But they won't go tell them nothing no way, because they wanted that money too. You know, the police never got, you know, come in our house or nothing. But I imagine folks was talking. But as long as you're not disturbing nobody, nobody gonna bother you nowhere. Now in her 70s, Martha's children are all grown up, and she hasn't picked up a deck of cards in years. People got to realize it's a stopping point to everything you go to do. So why should I play cards now? Because I ain't got to feed nobody but me. And if I feed somebody else's out the kindness of my heart, I might say, I cook this, I cook that, y'all come on and get some. So I don't, I don't have no use for cards now. For With Good Reason, I'm Matt Dara. On January 16, 1919, Congress passed the 18th Amendment outlawing the sale and transportation of alcohol. My next guest is Michael Lewis. He's a sociology professor at Christopher Newport University and an editor of Prohibition's Greatest Myths, the distilled truth about America's anti-alcohol crusade. Michael, what first got you interested in Prohibition? What, what raised your interest in it? You know, I'm a sociologist by training. And so the part of sociology I study is on social movements. And most of the study of social movements in sociology focuses on movements that didn't quite completely get what they wanted. Civil rights is understood to be a dream deferred. Women's rights, very much a work in progress. The labor movement has had moments, but they are few and far between. Prohibition is an interesting case because prohibition is an instance in which the lefties, the sociologists, diagnosed a problem as a social problem, and they got what they wanted. So it's a rare example for us as sociologists of what we would call the good guys winning. I thought prohibition was begun by church people, not lefties. Actually, no. There were church people involved, but really the people who were responsible for Prohibition were people who were social workers, Jane Addams, people like that, people who were interested in the abolition movement, actually, which is where the prohibition movement really started. Most of the prohibition organizations of the late 19th century began and had people who transferred over from the abolitionist movement. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. So you even have people like Frederick Douglass, who was an abolitionist. First, but a prohibitionist, very close second. And what was Frederick Douglass's greatest argument? Why was he so much of a um, prohibitionist? He understood, as most of the prohibitionists did, alcohol to be the enslavement of the soul, of the mind, of the body, of our democracy, of women's ability to care for their families, of workers' rights in all sorts of ways. Early prohibitionists used the language of slavery very directly and very intentionally. They understood this to be a parallel instance. You are editor of a recent book on the greatest myths of prohibition. Are people's understandings of prohibition totally off? Totally no, but a lot off enough off that it annoys my colleagues. In fact, the reason that this edited volume got written is because a bunch of us were sitting around at a conference and we were all belly aching, as all academics I think are want to do, about how nobody understands us, nobody knows what's going on. And so finally, we few of us put our heads together and said, okay, let's put our money where our mouth is. Let's pick our greatest pet peeves. Do you have a pet peeve? You know, my pet peeve is, uh, and the chapter I wrote is on people's understanding that alcohol use actually increased during prohibition, which it did not. And of course, it's impossible to know exactly how much alcohol was drunk during that decade because 
it was underground, so you didn't know. But we can measure that fairly accurately by looking at diseases like cirrhosis of the liver. And we know that it takes about 10 to 15 years to make itself apparent. That's probably not going to capture casual drinking, but it surely will capture the kinds of drinking that prohibitionists were concerned about with regards to saloons, the person who's in there every single day drinking way too much than is good for them, that kind of thing. And when you look at rates of cirrhosis of the liver, what you see is that in the early and mid-1930s, they dropped substantially, which suggests that in the early and mid-1920s, drinking dropped substantially. There's no question that prohibition lowered the amount of people that drank and the amount of alcohol that was consumed. Was prohibition mostly confined to the United States? Were we the drunken ones and the ones that, you know, seized the day to stop it? You know, we might have been the drunken ones. That I'm not sure of. But I know <laughs> that prohibition was not confined to the United States at all. It was part of a worldwide movement. And I have colleagues who write about this more specifically and say, you know, not only did it happen in many other countries, that's because the prohibitionist movement was a worldwide social movement. It's the first example we have really of a social movement that crossed borders. So... Prior to and around World War I, Canada adopted prohibition. The Scandinavian countries did. Soviet Russia did for a time. And the Tsar before that. All Muslim countries have been prohibitionists for quite some time and continue to be so in a lot of ways for very religious reasons. Was America sort of leading the way, leading the conversation? Not really. We were behind. We were behind. We were part of it, but we were in no way ahead of it. Canada adopted prohibition earlier because it got into World War I earlier. You know, so did many of the Scandinavian countries for the same reason. So did the Tsarist Russian regime for the same reason. They thought a sober army is a better army. I don't know if that's true, but the logic is certainly there. We didn't get into World War I until a lot later, right? So when we got into World War I, President Wilson at the time issued a ban on alcohol, which was our first foray into that. We didn't actually pass the law until a couple of years later after World War I had ended. We not only passed a law, we passed a constitutional a amendment. amendment. Right. In the simplest part of the language of that amendment said what? Said, from this point on, alcohol is banned. But it took the actual law, the Volstead Act, which was passed a year later by Congress, which was just a law that had to define what alcohol was. And they defined it much more tightly than I think a lot of people who voted for it thought they would. They thought, okay, something maybe 10% liquor, something like that. It went all the way down to like 1%. And people, I'm sure some people at the time gasped because they were like, oh, wait a second now. That's a lot more serious than what we thought we were going to get. And could you be arrested for drinking? There were public drunkenness laws on the book, so of course you could. But the law itself actually was interested in banning the manufacture, transportation, and sale, which again points back to the prohibitionist real aim, which is how do we get rid of the liquor trust? How do we stop that business model of unfettered alcohol sales to everybody? It's so interesting that not only was there a constitutional amendment to pass prohibition, it took one to get rid of it. it. And this was just 13 years later. Yeah, yeah, 13 years later. And you know what's interesting is that at that point, there was almost as many people against federal prohibition as there was for federal prohibition 13 years earlier. But you have to remember, too, that repealing federal prohibition didn't necessarily eliminate prohibition laws in any given state. Virginia, where we sit now, was still dry, even though they repealed federal prohibition. What happened in those 13 years to flip it? A couple of things that historians usually point to. One, the Great Depression. So now there's a much greater need for government resources. Liquor is a now untaxed resource that could be taxed. So people started to make that kind of argument. We got a lot of poor people out there now. We got more people on the relief rolls than ever before. FDR wants to do a bunch of big government expenditures, and all of that's going to require money from somewhere. So that felt like an untapped resource. But the other thing is there was a, two groups of people, organizations, that were just as good at campaigning against prohibition as folks earlier had been in campaigning for it. What else has emerged in your book as either myths about prohibition or things that would surprise us? One thing that would probably surprise a lot of folks is most folks would think that prohibition increased organized crime, which it did a little bit, but organized crime was already there. But what it did increase was the size of the federal government's ability to prosecute prohibition cases. Before prohibition started, there were only three federal prisons in the entire country. Can you imagine what that would look like now? Like we have federal prisons everywhere. And most of that growth starts with prohibition. 
because it's the first time that the feds are really getting into trying to do something about a particular law that way. But it meant that we had created a law, then criminalized an activity, and then built federal prisons in order to house all the people that were now criminals. Right, right. We built federal prisons. We also built better federal police forces. And the FBI became much, much stronger during the 1920s and became very popular as an avenue for young people to go into jobs with, in part because of that propaganda that went along with that. Do you think culturally, through movies, television programs, and other ways that we are influenced about history, that the the public understanding of prohibition has changed over the decades? You know, I think so a little bit. Certainly, we are now much more awash in those kinds of things. Boardwalk Empire is the most recent one that I can think of. But they're all sort of always out there, you know, in this idea that somehow gangsters from that era are glamorous. They've got the, you know, the the hats the certain way and the ties and the whole thing. And of course, also completely ignores the real human cost of all of this. You know, it just becomes a story that we tell about good guys and bad guys chasing each other down a street in Chicago somewhere without really thinking about what alcohol means in our lives now and the suffering that really still happens as a result of it. Has it opened your eyes? You know, it has. I'm a lot more aware of how alcohol gets thought of. So, you know, prior to Prohibition, they thought about folks as, who drank as sinners. And you know, during Prohibition, they thought about them as enemies in some ways, enemies of the state. And then shortly after Prohibition, federal Prohibition ended, you know, AA started. So now we're in a moment where alcoholism is understood as a disease, which changes how we think and the kind of compassion we can give for folks who are suffering. And I got to say, I mean, people who walk those steps and help other people to walk in those steps are engaged in wonderful, beautiful effort. Michael Lewis, thank you for talking with me. Thank you so much, Sarah. Michael Lewis is a sociology professor at Christopher Newport University and an editor of Prohibition's Greatest Myths, the distilled truth about America's anti-alcohol crusade. There are currently more than 100,000 people in the United States in need of an organ transplant. Every year, thousands die waiting for their turn on the transplant wait list. Kim Krovic is a law professor at the University of Virginia and host of the podcast Taboo Trades. She studies how we view organ donation as admirable as long as money isn't involved. Kim, when it comes to organ donation, what's considered taboo? Well, it's interesting. I am particularly fascinated by activities and transactions that are not only are they not taboo, they are often applauded as being heroic, provided that they're done altruistically. But inserting money into the equation renders something that was otherwise a very admirable action into something that becomes taboo, socially disfavored, and in the case of trading organs for money, illegal throughout most of the world, Iran being the only exception. And what do you think are the primary reasons for that? I think there are a lot of reasons for that. There's a fear of coercion, that people will be lured by money into doing something that's not really a rational or a free choice, that people will be treated unfairly, that they will be not compensated properly or otherwise treated poorly in the transaction. There's a fear about what this says about us as a society. We are not the type of people that values humanity as a collection of body parts and is not the appropriate way to value our fellow human beings. So all of these are some of the more prominent objections. And then there are practical objections as well, having to do with the quality and fears of exploitation of poorer countries and poorer people in particular. That one in particular, that if you allow organs to go to the highest bidders, poor people are never going to get organs. Exactly right. I've told you the objections. I don't necessarily consider them to be crazy objections, but I don't consider most of them to be insurmountable. And this is one of them. So... We are not anywhere close to having organ markets in the United States, and I'm not suggesting that we are. Having said that, there are some people who advocate a version of organ markets in the United States. 
And everyone who's serious about it, I think, is very careful to point out that what they actually envision is something very similar to the current system that we have right now, which is where organs are allocated centrally based on things such as medical need and time on the waiting list. And the only difference is that the government would provide some sort of incentive for donors to come forward to increase supply. Nothing would change in terms of who gets organs and how they are allocated so that it would not be based on ability to pay. It would be based on things such as medical need. And for people who feel strongly about this, their argument is that actually it would benefit poor people rather than harm poor people because poor people and racial minorities disproportionately suffer from end-stage renal disease and as a result disproportionately suffer from any shortages of transplantable organs. Where do most organs come from? Is it from a loved one who's had some sort of medical crisis who is now not going to live and the decision is made prior to death to harvest organs? So most organs come from two places. I'm talking for the moment about kidney donation because some organs can only really be deceased donations. But for kidneys, which makes up the vast majority of the waiting list for organs, organs come from deceased donors or they come from living donors. So deceased donors almost always just donate to the waiting list. It's sort of, you know, whoever's next in line can have my organs, including my kidney, after I am deceased. Living donors are almost always closely related to the person they're donating to. Siblings, parent, child, spouse, something like that. You have a podcast called Taboo Trades, which you say is a show about stuff we're not supposed to sell but do anyway. (laughs) That's correct. (laughs) You had a fascinating guest who was an Israeli scientist who had four organ transplants. Tell me about him and the guilt he expressed to you over having purchased one of his organs in the black market. He was fascinating. First of all, I have never personally met someone who's had that many transplants. And he actually just represented the really the entire spectrum of sort of organ donation. He received, I think, one donation from a family member, one from the wait list, one he purchased. This is something that I think will haunt him for the rest of his life. In some ways, he doesn't regret it. I think it, he had to do it to live. But he doesn't consider this to be, you know, a high point in his life or something that he is proud of. I found it very interesting because, first of all, he did meet his donor that he purchased a kidney from and learned about him and attempted to keep in touch over the years. It changed the way he thought about kidney sellers. Though he does not support markets for organs, it nonetheless changed the way he thought about their motivations and their knowledge and their reasons for for doing what they do. But nonetheless, he, he feels a lot of guilt about having done that. While I believe he at the same time said that he would do it again. You know, he had no choice. How much did he pay? I think he said $100,000. That's a that's a good amount to receive as a donor, certainly. That is right. And it was both his his donor and his donor's brother. They were both kidney sellers. And the reason for doing it was to pay off some debts that their father had incurred. Ironically, those debts were to the Israeli government. And so they were engaging in this black market transaction in order to satisfy a government debt, which is sort of the icing on the cake, I think. You also study the egg and surrogacy markets. I do. How do those markets compare with the organ market? That's a great question. Unlike the organ market, which you and I have just discussed, there is broad agreement on this repugnance and and undesirability of a market there. There is vast, vast variation around the world in the approach to egg and sperm markets and commercial surrogacy. Throughout almost all of the United States, Louisiana, I believe, is the only outlier where egg and sperm markets are not permitted. So in the United States, these are really quite robust markets. Commercial surrogacy, the laws vary more across the states, but but the United States is certainly a destination where some people come to in order to have surrogacy services. 
Whereas in much of the rest of the world, both egg and sperm markets, although egg markets are more likely to be illegal than sperm markets, and commercial surrogacy are frequently disfavored in other legal regimes around the world. So there is much less agreement on the taboo nature of those markets than there is with regard to organ donation. What do you think that is? Why do Americans have no problem with surrogacy and other nations do? Well, I wouldn't say that Americans have no problems with it. And this is one of the reasons I find it interesting, right? So it's not illegal in most jurisdictions. It's legal. But having said that, you might not announce at the family Thanksgiving dinner that you just sold your eggs (laughs) or that you're carrying someone else's baby, right? And so I do think that there remains, it is an, they're interesting. I think that there is a discomfort with those markets while at the same time, there is a rhetoric around the market saying, yes, yes, that people are giving the gift of life. They're helping someone else who is infertile. It's a wonderful thing to do. And yet there is a lot of discomfort with respect to all three of those markets, but more so with surrogacy and then egg markets. And then I think with sperm markets, having the least amount of discomfort, even in the United States, where again, those transactions are broadly legal. So interesting that our conception of what is taboo can change with familiarity in science, right? That's exactly right. And I think it's only natural that things that are new are initially thought to be problematic, right? You know, because by definition, these new types of transactions will in fact implicate ethical and legal and economic and all sorts of other issues that we might not have thought deeply about before because we had no reason to think deeply about them before. But it is also important to focus in as much as possible on what are the reasons for our objections to this. Not that it feels wrong or that it looks wrong or that it's new. Um, I think that there is a tendency to go very quickly from this is new and disturbing and, you know, I see these things wrong with it and therefore we should stamp it out without also going through the steps of saying, okay, what exactly is it that's problematic about this and in what way is it different from the other types of contractual employment relationships that we permit and even encourage all the time. So true. This is interesting. Kim Kravick, thank you for talking with me. Thank you so much. I've really enjoyed it. Kim Kravick is a law professor at the University of Virginia and host of the podcast Taboo Trades. This is With Good Reason. We'll be right back. Welcome back to With Good Reason from Virginia Humanities. Most of us know the dark web as the scary, mysterious corner of the internet where online crime reigns free. But my next guest says the dark web is actually more than just a hub of illegal activity. It can actually be used for good as well. Babor Coey is a cybersecurity professor at Northern Virginia Community College. So I know we all have heard about the dark web, but how different is it really from the web we're familiar with? So uh, just to give a foundation, there's only one internet. Uh, So surface web, you can simply open up a web browser as long as you have internet, type in the URL of your choice, some sort of address, it will take you directly to that. And for the dark web, since the attribution management is a bit different, you know, how the networking is done, how the encryption is done, it may require specialized software for you to get to. Oh, really? It could be specialized software to get onto the dark web? Absolutely. Yeah. So that's one of the unique parts. That's why it's not readily accessible in a way. Just like you would go and search, say, Google, Yahoo, Bing, or one of your uh, search engine sites. When you start thinking about like more of the deeper and darker corners of the web and how the networking is done, you would need specialized software, specialized in some cases hardware. And then just like back in type of, uh, you know, servers, basically data centers that are holding these special computers that the software is running for you to be able to enable to access those um, resources. So say I want to do it right now and 
you would guide me, you know, how would you get on? Uh, so there's a Tor browser, and then there's the network behind it. And those two in combination that work together to enable you to get to these non-traditional websites, for instance. How old were you when you first went there? Oh, my gosh. So, <laughs> so about <laughs> seven years ago, you know, give or take. And, you know, at the beginning, I was super excited, very, very interested, still interested. And, you know, it was just like a slower process also, because, again, if you don't plan right, if you don't have good contingency planning, good intent, you could end up hurting yourself. And what I mean by that, emotionally mostly, because even though the dark web was made for good purposes to provide near anonymity and utmost privacy, as we call it, within the wire, at the same time, there are a lot of people based on U.S. laws, they're criminals, right? And they're trying to hurt people, whether it's like malicious software or just saying things that we are not normally used to in daily lives. So give me a feeling for the kinds of things that would zing at me that I might perceive if I naively went on. Yeah, so um, you will see a lot of drugs, any type that you can find. A lot of guns, like weapons. You know, if you're a criminal, you cannot go to the store and purchase one legally. So therefore, probably you're going to traverse the networks and try to get it within a hidden network and pay with cryptocurrency. That's a little bit more difficult to trace. And uh, at the height of COVID-19, first six months, people were offering uh, clean blood. And then there's a lot of financial data also, uh, personally identifiable data, a lot of different corporate data that's secret to them uh, that was intentionally or unintentionally taken from those corporations and people involved and then put out for sale or auction or simply put free, depending on the uh, motivation of the threat actor. Tell me how the dark web figured into an incident a few years back called the Big Colonial Pipeline Breach. This made the headlines a few yeah. years ago, and the dark web was involved. Can you simply explain what was going on there? Yeah, yeah. And at a really high level, a uh, quick summary. Basically, what happened was what I was talking about, like ransomware, taking data ransom and then asking for money. And obviously, this is like highly confidential data from organizations, things that were inside the walls, inside the firewalls, but then they were exposed adversaries got in, locked up the data, and then asked for money to get that back. How dark web was used for that was, you know, some communication purposes and also just to advertise that, hey, I have this specific sensitive data. Who wants to purchase it? So that, that's one instance. Uh, there was also the D.C. police also. Their databases were exposed. A lot of personally identifiable information from the police force and everyone else involved were taken. It was the same, you know, very similar concept. And uh, at the time, I was uh, at the tail end of my research. And uh, I'm lurking around certain sites, collecting data. And, you know, it was easy for me to come up with the you know, adversary's website. They were... You know, they had the police data out there in different folders saying, here, this for free. Because what happened was within that adversary and the police department, they tried to negotiate. And some of the messages that were posted over their screenshots, you know, they were talking. It's like a business deal. You know, say, imagine you are the police department and I'm the bad guy in this instance, just for example purposes. I'm asking you for $50. You're like, no, I cannot afford 50 How about I give you $20? And then I'm just like, no, 20 is not good enough. You know, that's not enough profit. I might as well just give it out for free. And that's exactly what they did. You know, these are some of the ones that make the uh, news and media. But there's th this type of stuff happens quite often. You're a big believer that this isn't just a haven for criminals, that the dark web is actually used a lot for good purposes. Tell me what kinds. Absolutely. So that was the original intent when um, the U.S. Department of Defense funded this project back in the day. And it was to keep our people safe and provide them that, that safety and that security and privacy that was needed to communicate within the Internet or within the wires is what I call it. So many, many different great uses. You know, simply put, you know, your privacy is important. And some people think that, yeah, I have privacy, but do we really say if we are just driving around on the street? There's so many different cameras. For the most part, we don't know who controls that. And it even gets even more difficult within the Internet because you cannot really see the camera that may be watching you. You cannot really see all the different directions or routes that your messages, say if I'm messaging you on iMessage that goes from here to who knows whose server in this case, say, assume that it's Apple before it ends up to your phone. So if you're like doing communications or simply just browsing the web without, you know, utmost censorship, 
trying to kind of stay under the radar. And something like a Tor network provides that opportunity for you. And uh, I use it a whole lot for research to protect myself. I'm not really lying. I'm not really hiding from our government or, or a specific entity. What I'm trying to do is protect myself because I don't want to get harmed. And then uh, a lot of good uses in terms of operations. Uh, say you're operating at different countries, hostile countries, hostile or not, you know, do you have the right to, to that privacy? So it's important to take those steps to make sure that the means of communication that you have has security, has encryption. And then there are a lot of uh, others, you know, in terms of hacktivism and activism. There are many countries, we're really fortunate in the U.S., monitoring and surveillance is near non-existent. But, you know, you can imagine what's happening around the globe. And there are many, many authoritarian countries and governments. They are constantly monitoring their people and everyone else that's going to coming in and out of the country. So in those cases, instead of just being wide and open and using just like typical browsers, it may make sense to preserve your privacy and have some security and peace of mind by using the Tor network or Freenet or ZeroNet or the Invisible Internet projects for what's available for you. So many, many great use cases out there and one size doesn't fit all. And you have to kind of understand what the intent is and what are you trying to protect? And based upon that, you know, pick one of these networks or pick a communication medium that's not just wide in the open and use it. I know you think more people should be open to using the dark web to protect their privacy and anonymity, but don't you also imagine very few people would be capable of doing it well? Uh, yeah, so that's where we come into play as academics. Uh, we need to do more to provide those learning opportunities uh, right. for anyone that's interested. You know, traditionally, like, you know, most conversation still is, say, uh, I'm at a conference, dark web comes up, and then it kind of begins and ends with tour. Because many people, even though they have been in the industry for, for, you know, multiple years, they don't have a really good understanding of the concepts. Because as academics, as industry, as government, we didn't do enough to educate. So therefore, like, you know, college courses like what Nova Community College offers, it's an educational tool. In terms of advocacy, I do advocate for more privacy providing technologies because it's very important. It's important for us to preserve our privacy and it's important the technologies that we use, we also understand how we are using it and what purpose it solves. But that doesn't necessarily mean advocating using the dark web capabilities. Going back to your question for average citizens, say like you and I, I think there's a lot of things we could do that doesn't necessarily require the dark web use or access. However, that would be much better than just a regular means of communication, whether it's voice, uh, whether it's text message or email. So I would advocate for more awareness across the citizens and more discussions as such. I think that's very important for people to know exactly what it is and what good and bad it serves. Babor Coey, thank you for talking with me on With Good Reason. You're welcome. Thank you. Babor Coey is a cybersecurity professor at Northern Virginia Community College. My next guest studies what he calls the anti-Catholic underground, John Kneebone says there's a long history in the U.S. of the KKK and secret fraternal organizations preventing people of Catholic faith from holding office. John Kneebone is a professor emeritus of history at Virginia Commonwealth University. You could say the anti-Catholic underground stretches from the antebellum period before the Civil War the era of the uh, so-called know-nothings in politics who, if asked about their organization, always said, I know nothing. They promised to vote for no Catholics. There were riots against Catholic institutions. And it seemed to die down a bit, thanks to the American Civil War, but then flourished again in the late 19th century, thanks to immigration. Uh, this is largely a long-standing British-American cultural fear of Catholic tyranny, going back to the English Reformation, and it's a specific fear in the late 19th century of the large number of immigrants, especially from Catholic countries like Ireland, Italy, Germany, 
France, Southern Europe, that seem to be threatening to take over in politics, at least in cities. And the underground was organizations, many of them modeled on fraternal organizations with secret rituals, who did what they could, uh, largely through attacking Catholic candidates for office, to prevent Catholics from holding public office and influencing public opinion. And what I found was that there was a resurgence of this anti-Catholic underground uh, political activism in the period before World War I. And you found that actually the KKK was involved in the anti-Catholic underground. How so? I wouldn't have thought that. No, and, and the Klan, when you think of the Klan, and they probably in the beginning thought this way too, um, they were a white supremacist organization dedicated to uh, purifying the nation. But World War I's push for 100% Americanism against internal enemies reinforced the Klan as a sort of American conformist organization. And across the country, people who organized to stop German disloyalty, people that were not willing to support liberty bond campaigns, and so on through uh, vigilante violence, styled themselves as Ku Klux Klan. And the Klan tried to use that after World War I as a way of marketing itself to the nation. This was pretty popular. People liked the idea of being able to wear a mask and go out and commit violence against people they didn't like. But there were a lot more people who did not like that. Particularly, it brought down the wrath of public officials, law enforcement officials, and others. And in 1921, a New York City newspaper, uh, the New York World, began an expose of the Klan. And the Klan survived, but it ended up reviving in 1922 very much on the foundations of the old anti-Catholic organizations. It was much more of a political than terroristic organization. Why do you call it an anti-Catholic underground? Why wasn't it just widely held anti-Catholic public sentiment? Uh, well, I, I suspect if you had pushed the public, people would have said, well, I'm not sure I really trust Catholics. I'm a good Protestant, and I've been brought up on tales of the Reformation and Inquisition and the dangerous powers of the Pope and so on. But, again, we had a tradition of religious liberty in the U.S., and we had American Catholics who, like American blacks, worked very hard to counter this propaganda. In 1912, in fact, a weekly newspaper called our Sunday Visitor began in a small town in Indiana, eventually had a circulation, a weekly circulation of about 300,000, and it devoted much of its attention to the traveling, secretive, anti-Catholic lecturers. These are people who went from small town to small town. They found a sympathetic minister. They spoke of the church. They might drum up a crowd by speaking bigotry on a street corner and then renting a hall for a presentation. And they survived by selling anti-Catholic books and pamphlets. And what was the anti-Catholic underground trying to say about Catholics at that time? That these were harming a, a Protestant nation? They were a threat to a Protestant nation if— they were to gain power, say, by becoming president or by gaining a majority on the Supreme Court. They would then enact Catholic-based laws and eventually invite the Pope over to the U.S. 
to take over. In truth, uh, the Pope in the late 19th century seemed to be um, under fire in Italy, and there were American anti-Catholics who were convinced his next stop was the United States. Uh, that's a story that kept being retold and was told again in 1928 when Al Smith, the first Catholic candidate for president, was defeated by Herbert Hoover. Tell me about Al Smith and how his Catholicism played into his campaign. Smith was, was a devout Catholic, but he also was emphatic that there was a separation between church and state and that he would act independently as president, just as he had done as governor of New York and as a member of the New York legislature. And what you had was a whispering campaign across the country that Smith was a Catholic. He was going to bring the Pope to Washington, D.C. There are even pictures of construction on the Virginia side of the Potomac River, uh, completely unrelated. But the construction site was labeled in the caption as future home of the Pope. No, really? Oh, yes, yes. And that the building would be tall enough that cannons could fire directly on the U.S. Capitol if needed. What year was that? 1928. Huh. So Al Smith eventually lost to Herbert Hoover. Was it close? And do you think the anti-Catholic sentiment played a big role? I, I agree with other historians who have said that it would have been far, far closer if not for the Catholic issue. Hoover was not explicitly anti-Catholic himself, but he didn't protest against it very vigorously. You've looked at an episode of anti-Catholic hate that involved a Christopher Columbus statue in Richmond, Virginia, back in 1925. That's right. What did you learn about that? Uh, 1925, Italian-American citizens in Richmond proposed to give to the city a statue honoring Christopher Columbus. The statue reflected their pride as Italians and their pride as Americans. They offered it to the city, and groups unknown to city council showed up, declaring that Christopher Columbus was a religious figure, a Catholic, and that the statue, if it were accepted by the city, was a violation of church and state. And the city, city council backed down and said, no, thank you to the Italian-Americans. Now, they made the mistake of doing this during a national editorial convention, and newspaper editors across the country went home uh, and reported that Richmond had rejected Christopher Columbus. This embarrassed Richmond. <laughs> so they said, all right, all right, well, we'll do a compromise. We won't put the statue on what's now Arthur Ashe Boulevard, close to the uh, Stonewall Jackson statue, but instead we'll put it out at Bird Park at the very end of the boulevard. And Italian-Americans sort of grudgingly said, okay. And then in 2020, when the statues came down, Columbus was one of those pulled down and taken away. And ironically, not because it was Catholic, but because it related to Christopher Columbus' abuses of Native Americans. Right. Columbus, the uh, despoiler of the New World rather than discoverer of the New World. So do you think the anti-Catholic sentiment was firmly eroded and left in the past in America, or do you still see echoes today? Oh, there are, there are still people who see Protestantism as surviving only if it's kept pure and other religions pushed aside. I think there's more overt antagonism to Islam today than there is to the Catholic Church. And there's more anti-Semitism out in the open than open anti-Catholicism. Um, I would say that for the anti-Catholics of 100 years ago, if you were to tell them that here we are in 2023 and the Supreme Court of the United States has six out of nine justices who are Roman Catholics, they would be horrified. They would think we'd been taken over. <laughs> um, and I don't think we have been. I wonder if, as you were doing this research on this period of hostility from decades past, you had some insights into 
how we operate as a people, right? Well, I think one thing that historians tend to, to conclude is that people are rotten as often as they're noble, and there's a, <laughs> lot of, there's a lot of crummy stuff in our history. The best thing about this, I can say, is that always there have been voices raised in protest. They can be seen as self-interested. The Catholics who spoke up for Catholics, Jews who spoke up for Jews, blacks who spoke up for blacks. But there are plenty of other folks who said, no, this is wrong. We don't want to live like this. We want to live together and in a society of equals rather than this kind of antagonism. So, so there's always been that heroic descent from the bigotry, sometimes not heard as clearly as it could be. It's wonderful to hear you say that and to remind us of that. John Kneebone, thank you for talking with me on With Good Reason. It's a pleasure. Thank you. John Kneebone is a professor emeritus of history at Virginia Commonwealth University. With Good Reason is produced by Virginia Humanities, which acknowledges the Monica Nation, the original people of the land and waters of our home in Charlottesville, Virginia. Our production team is Allison Quantz, Matt Darrow, Lauren Francis, and Jamal Milner. Aviva Costo and Liliana Bukowski are our interns. Special thanks to Carice Luck Bremer of Danville and to Jenny Taylor for booking assistance. For the podcast, go to withgoodreasonradio.org. I'm Sarah McConnell. Thanks for listening. <laughs>